Now, friends, as we come to the first book of Kings, again, may I say that this is the second in a series of three double books, first and second Samuel, and then first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles. Actually, the double books were at one time single books, one book of Samuel, one book of Kings, one book of Chronicles, but the Septuagint translators made the division, and of course they made it more or less for the convenience of the reader, and I think that it was probably a very wise decision that was made. The theme, as we come now to these two books of Kings, is this expression that occurs nine times in First Kings, as David his father. In other words, we're following the line of David, and each king was measured by the standard of David. Now, very frankly, it was a human standard, and it was not the highest standard in the world. But we find that king after king failed to attain even to it. But thank God there were those that did measure up to it. And we find that as you get into this section, that it's a sorry, sordid section. It's history, and it reveals the decline and fall of the kingdom. It was first divided, and then each kingdom fell. We have a key. I always like to pick out a verse that more or less describes this section in each book of the Bible. I would choose here... 2 Kings 17, 22, 23, and let me read that. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. And now another verse is Second Kings twenty five twenty one, and the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of their land. Now we have here in First Kings the record of the division of the kingdom, and Second Kings records the collapse of the kingdom. And when they are considered together, they open with King David, they close with the king of Babylon. They are the book of man's rule over God's kingdom. And the results are not good, of course. The throne on earth must be in tune with the throne in heaven if blessings come and benefits accrue to God's people. Yet man's plan cannot overthrow God's purposes, as we shall see. Now, what we have here is a continuation of the narrative that was begun in First and Second Samuel. Actually, First and Second Samuel with First and Second Kings can be viewed as one book. In these two books, the history of the nation is traced from the time of its greatest extent, influence, and prosperity under David and Solomon to the division, and finally the captivity and exile of both kingdoms. Now, the moral teaching here is to show man his inability to rule himself and the world. In these four historical books, we have the rise and fall of the kingdom of Israel. Now, this is very important, as you can see.
Now, in the first two chapters, we just continue right on with the story of David. And here, actually, we have David in chapter 1. He becomes senile. And then we have the abortive attempt of Adonijah to seize the throne. And also, we have Solomon anointed by David. So this first chapter is actually a tremendous chapter, by the way, that opens First Kings. Now let's begin reading here. It's a sad verse that opens here. We read, Now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with cloths, but he got no heat. David is old now, and he's senile. He's an old man. It's difficult to conceive of David as an old man. We always think of David from the Sunday school card that was given to us when we were little, picture of a shepherd boy. And it's difficult to picture him as an old, senile man, but that's what he is. Now, we find that Adonijah, his son, takes advantage of him in this condition, and he attempts to put himself on the throne, make himself king. And, of course, that's not going to fit in with God's plan. And we see a great deal of intrigue that goes on here. That was one of the things that characterized the reign of David, was the amount of intrigue that went on. Now let's find out who Adonijah was. This is the first time that he's really been mentioned to us in any prominent connection at all. Verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. And that word exalted himself is interesting. For there's a verse of Scripture that you can put right down over it. He that exalteth himself shall be abased. Well, that's going to be true of Adonijah. And he exalted himself by saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. Now, there are many things that have said to us here about Adonijah. We already know about him. He's a very proud young man. He has a very high regard for himself. He's a very conceited young man, by the way. And you detect in him some of the traits of his brother, Absalom. Absalom led a rebellion against David. This boy, I think, had something not been done. He would have led a rebellion against his own father, David. But David, now being senile and old, and he had never had a reputation of disciplining his family. I tell you, he certainly had a disorganized family. It was in the palace of David, it was organized chaos all the time. And what we have is this boy here taking advantage of the situation. And he is a brother of Absalom. This tells us a great deal about him. And David never rebuked him. When he did this, David, I think, just smiled as an old indulgent man would over this boy of his. 
And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they following Adonijah helped him. Now Joab, who had been loyal to David all the way through, he now goes over to this boy Adonijah. And very candidly, you can see his position. He's feathering his nest. He's preparing for the future. David's old. He'll be gone shortly. Now, Joab wants to be on the winning side. The only one on the scene that's making any move to the throne is Adonijah. And as a result, this man Joab, who had tremendous influence in the palace and the court of David, he'd been David's right-hand man from the very beginning. And I'm confident he was loyal to David. I do not believe he would have permitted this boy, Adonijah, to touch a hair of David's head. But he did want somebody, you know, on the scene to come to the throne at this time. And there's no other boy, no other son of David that seemed to be likely. And I think that's interesting. I do not think Joab would have picked Solomon as king. And if you want my judgment... I would say that David did not want Solomon either. After all, Absalom was his choice. And you would think that he probably would smile at the move of Adonijah, because Adonijah must have been very much like Absalom. Now we find that Adonijah made a banquet. That's always a good way to get support for any project. You want to do something, have a church banquet or have a banquet somewhere, and you'll get a lot of support. And Adonijah slew sheep and oxen, fat cattle, by the stone of Zoelath, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren the king's sons, and all the men of Judah the king's servants. Well, what he's going to do is make the announcement that he's the king. And I think by right of primogeniture, he probably had a right to the throne or he had a claim upon the throne. I take it that he was older than Solomon. Well, I don't only take it, it's told here. He was older than Solomon. And according to the rule and regulation of the day, the oldest son always was the crown prince and succeeded. And his oldest brother, or older brother, Absalom, is dead, of course. Now, when the invitations went out to the king's sons, this is a pretty bold move, and especially in light of the fact that Solomon was left out. He just didn't get an engraved invitation. Now, this is where Nathan the prophet begins to move, verse 10. But Nathan the prophet and Benaiah and the mighty man and Solomon, his brother, he called not. Now, he knew that Nathan would be on Bathsheba's side because of the fact that it was Nathan that guided David during that awful period when David committed the great sin that he did. Now, Nathan goes to Bathsheba, verse 11. Wherefore Nathan spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, doth reign, and David our Lord knoweth it not? Actually, Adonijah was now beginning to move to the back of David. He was not consulting him at all. Now, Nathan wants to make a move, and he does it. He says, go 
and get thee unto King David. Say unto him, Didst not thou, my lord, O king, swear unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then doth Adonijah reign? This man, David, had made a promise to Bathsheba that when the second boy was born, which was Solomon, the first son had died, that he would be the king. And David is making no move to put Solomon on the throne. I don't think that he had very much of a heart for it. I don't think he was enthusiastic about making him king. And I think we can show that as we move along here. This is not just on my part, just guesswork, because I think it's quite obvious that David did not exactly approve of Solomon. Now we read verse 14, Behold, while thou yet talkest there with the king, I will also come in after thee, confirm thy word. In other words, he says, we better alert David. And the way to do it is you go in and tell him, then I'll come in and enforce it. And maybe we can wake up this senile king to what's taking place under his very nose. Now we read verse 15, And Bathsheba went in under the king, into the chamber, and the king was very old. And Abishag the Shunammite ministered unto the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance unto the king. And the king said, What wouldest thou? And he hadn't seen her, I think, in a long time. And she said unto him, My lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God, unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah reigneth. And now, my lord, the king, thou knowest it not. He hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and hath called all the sons of the king, and Abiathar the priest, and Joab the captain of the host. But Solomon thy servant, hath he not called. And thou, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldst tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. See, David had made no move to pick his successor, and he had several sons there. And I'm of the opinion that Adonijah was a very attractive, handsome, capable boy, and a great many were going after him. It says, Otherwise it shall come to pass, when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. And lo, while she yet talked with King Nathan the prophet, also came in. And they told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan the prophet, when he was coming before the king, he bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, Hast thou said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? And David says, Why, of course I never said anything like that. And then King David answered, I'm dropping down now to verse 28. He said, Call me Bathsheba. She came into the king's presence, stood before the king. And the king swore and said, As the Lord liveth, that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. And I notice that David didn't say our son. 
He said, your son. David wasn't too much for Solomon, and I don't think they had too much in common, as we shall see here. Now we read, Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Call me Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. They came before the king. The king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and call Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. You see, the mule was the animal kings rode upon. The horse was the animal of warfare. You find in the book of Revelation the riding of the four horses. That's turmoil, warfare. And the Lord Jesus comes to this earth riding on a white horse. That speaks of warfare. He's coming to put down rebellion on the earth. And you will find that when the Lord Jesus was here, he didn't come to make war. He came to bring peace to souls that will trust him. And he rode the little animal into Jerusalem. But that's the animal that kings ride upon. And so now the animal that David rode upon is to be brought out, decked out, and this boy Solomon is to be put on him and also... Solomon sitteth on the throne of the kingdom. The word went out to Jerusalem. And moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, God, make the name of Solomon better than thy name, and make his throne greater than thy throne. The king bowed himself upon the bed. David's an old man, friends. And also thus saith the king, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which hath given one to sit on my throne this day mine eyes even seeing it, and all the guests that were with Adonijah were afraid, rose up, when every man his way. And Adonijah feared because of Solomon, and arose and went and caught holt on the horns of the altar. That was the place, you see, of safety in that day, holding on to the strength of the Lord, as it were. And it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah feareth King Solomon. For lo, he hath caught holt on the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he'll not slay his servant with the sword. And Solomon said, If he'll show himself a worthy man, there shall not a hair of him fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. Now Solomon is being very fair here at the beginning with Adonijah. If he shows himself be a loyal subject, why, nothing would happen to him. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and bowed himself to King Solomon. And Solomon said unto him, Go to thine house. He dismissed him. And Adonijah now goes to his own house. I'm coming now to chapter 2, verse 1. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. He charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. Now, this is something tremendous, David says. First, I go the way of all the earth. This is the way of man. By man came death, and death is passed on all because all have sinned. The sin of Adam has been made over to you and me. And if the Lord tarry, we'll go down through the doorway of death. Why? Because this is the way of all the earth. 
This is the way we're journeying. It's not a very pretty sight. And you don't see this depicted today. This is something that's a little too depressing for the human race. But actually, all of us are, as David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, when David said that, he's not speaking of the fact he's come to his deathbed. What he's saying is that the minute that you begin to live, and as someone has said, the moment that gives you life begins also to take it away from you. And David is speaking of the fact that when you start out in life, you start down through a valley. Farther you go, the narrower it gets, and at the end of that valley is death. All of us are walking down through that valley today. And it doesn't make any difference. You may be in robust health day, but you could be dead before the sun goes down. David says, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. May I say to you, why did David say that to this boy? He said it to him because he wasn't a man. He was a panty waist. Remember the Lord Jesus put it like this concerning John the Baptist. He says, what did you go out to see? A man in soft clothing? Those that are in soft clothing, they're in king's palace. Oh, John the Baptist had been brought up out yonder in the wilderness. He was rugged. Have you ever stopped to think they paint the Lord Jesus? And I don't like any of the pictures. Almost effeminate. There have been pictures that try to make him very masculine. May I say to you, if you could really have seen him, he was rugged. He had corns on his hands. He was a carpenter. He had muscle. He was a man. He was God, but he was a man. He's very man of very man and very God of very God. Solomon wasn't quite a man, friends. David was. David was rugged. He said to the boy, you've been brought up in king's palaces. fact of the matter is, he's brought up over there in the women's palaces. Why did Solomon get a thousand women around him? My friend, it's quite obvious. That's all he knew about. He was a sissy. If there ever was a sissy, that's Solomon. And I don't think he and David had much in common. David says to him now, Major King, I want you to play the man. Don't think you are one, but do the best you can. Be a man. That was the injunction he gave to this boy brought up with soft clothing, panty ways. Not like David. Not like John the Baptist. And not like our Lord either, my friend. This is Solomon. This is the king. Now, David had actually very little confidence or sympathy for Solomon. They were apparently very far apart. We speak today of the generation gap. Well, there certainly was one year between these two men. For I think this charge that he gave to him, I go the way of all the earth, be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. I think he wondered whether Solomon would show himself a man. He charges him to be a man. And it reveals, I think, that David had a little confidence in a successor who'd been reared in the palace among the women. David knew the tough discipline of the caves and a great deal about a rugged outdoor life. And he had been in danger many, many times. But Solomon was one raised in the comforts and luxury and the ease of the palace And David's charge, I think, reveals something of his own character, by the way.
Then in verse 3, he continues, and he says, "...and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself." Now, David you see, urges this young man to stay close to the Lord and to the Word of God. That is something very important. I note that very little attention is ever given to David's legacy to Solomon. It's ordinarily ignored. And I'd like to call attention to what I believe is the legacy that David left to this man that enabled him to become one of the great kings of the earth, probably one of the best-known kings that has ever been on the earth. First of all, he transferred the leadership of the nation from the house of Saul and the tribe of Benjamin to Judah, and he established the royal house of David, so that this becomes all-important, as we've seen, when you get to the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew opens with the statement, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's all important. And then the angel Gabriel said to Mary, He shall be great. He shall sit upon the throne of his father David. That's important. Now, the second legacy is he established Jerusalem as the holy city and as the religious center and the national capital for all Jews. And it's that to this day. So that when Israel took the ancient city of Jerusalem in the Six-Day War, they said they haven't any notion of giving that up at all, because that goes back to David. Jerusalem was his favorite city. And now it becomes the capital, and it is Solomon who will beautify by the building of the temple and make it a religious center. But David had already made the preparation for it, and we're going to see that as we move along. Then there is a third legacy. He stamped out idolatry, practically speaking, and he made the worship of Jehovah universal in the land. That is something that he did that is very, very important. There is another legacy that we'd like to mention. It's the fourth. He made conquests of many nations who paid tribute to Israel and its king. He extended the borders of the country to Egypt on the south and to the river Euphrates on the north and east, including far more territory than at any other time in the nation's history. Now, David is actually the one who pushed out the borders farther than they had ever been before and farther than they've ever been since then. It wasn't Solomon. There was peace in the reign of Solomon, but it was warfare during the reign of David. Now, he's an oriental monarch. He had a sizable harem, which was the custom of that day. It's not that God approved it. He didn't approve it. And David was in hot water all the time because of that. These different sons of these different women that he had, caused a constant brawl going on inside the palace. And it was really something that caused David woe and sorrow all of his life. 
but there's something we ought to note. David's foreign marriages were largely political, and they were relatively free from religious and moral corruption. Now, Solomon will be carried away by a foreign wife, but not David. David was not influenced by that at all, and there was no corruption connected with David's marriage at all. We need to note that. Now, he committed an awful sin. That wasn't in connection with this woman after he married her at all. There was no more, not even the breath of scandal after that. Now, David was a poet and musician who endeared himself to the people as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And it was David who planned the temple, which was to exalt the Lord and the religious life of the nation and the worship of Jehovah, although he was not permitted to build the Lord's house, we'll see it was David's temple. Then there is an eighth legacy that he bequeathed to his son, although there was still rivalry of a sort between the ten tribes of the north and Judah in the south, and it had ever been since the death of Saul. Even so, David had no serious difficulty in uniting all the tribes under his rule. And no question about the national capital being at Jerusalem. And then the ninth and the last one that we'd mentioned, at the time of David's death, the nation was second to none in power and military prowess. And the people had a large measure of peace and freedom as every man sat under his vine and his fig tree. And the peace that Solomon enjoyed during his reign was a peace that had been made by David during his reign. So this man inherited a great deal, and a great deal of the credit that goes to Solomon actually, I think, belongs to David, and properly so. Now we come here to the death of David. And I'll not read any more of this other than to drop down and to read something that will come up later. And verse 8, And behold, thou hast with thee Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite of Bahurim, which cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at Jordan, and I swear to him by the Lord, saying, I'll not put thee to death with the sword. Now therefore hold him not guiltless, for thou art a wise man and knowest what thou oughtest to do unto him, but his whorehead bring thou down to the grave with blood. Now David is making here what seems like a rather vengeful or revealing a vengeful spirit. But actually, it's not that. This man, Shimei, had proved himself a traitor again and again. But because David had taken an oath and David stood by his word, he wouldn't touch him. But now he tells Solomon, you keep your eye on him. And if he reveals any of that, you've made no treaty with him. You haven't given him your word, then you deal with him accordingly. And Solomon's going to deal with him accordingly, by the way, but only after he disobeys and reveals that he is a traitor. Now we come to the death of David. So David slept with his father and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were forty years. 
Seven years reigned he in Hebron, and thirty and three years reigned he in Jerusalem. Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. Now let's look back at this for just a moment. This is the death of David, and there is a note of sadness. You can't read it without revealing that. And it injects a sad note here in the record. He'd been a great man, a man of God. And now he's doing what he had said he would ultimately do. You remember when that little one died, the first son of Bathsheba? He said, he'll never come to me, but I'll go to him. Now David is going to him. That's what is happening on David's side. Now will you notice that Solomon now comes to the throne. Now what is he going to do? Well, he's going to have trouble at the change of any dynasty or from one ruler to another. There's always a time of turmoil and there is a time of of great change. Now, this boy, Adonijah, he has not given up his idea of wanting to be the king. The fact of the matter is, he still harbors that thought. And in verse 13, I read, And Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. He said, Moreover, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And she said, Say on. He comes to Bathsheba, and she, you know, hasn't very much confidence in him at all. And she wants to know what his mission is. He says it's a peaceable one. And so he says, I have something to say to you. And she says, I'm listening. And he said, verse 15, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine. That's a bad statement to make, isn't it? He hadn't given up idea of being king. And that all Israel set their faces on me. In other words, I'm more popular than Solomon. That I should reign. Howbeit the kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's, for it is his from the Lord. And that's just a pious gesture on the part of this boy Adonijah. And now I ask one petition of thee. Deny me not. And she said unto him, Say on. And he said, Speak, I pray thee, unto Solomon the king, for he will not say thee nay, that he give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife. Now Bathsheba said, Well, I'll speak for thee unto the king. Bathsheba therefore went unto king Solomon to speak unto him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her, bowed himself unto her, sat down on his throne, caused a seat to be set for the king's mother, She sat on his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of thee. I pray thee, say me not nay. And the king said unto her, Ask on my mother, for I'll not say thee nay. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah thy brother to wife. Now, who was she? Well, she had been one of David's concubines. And this, of course, he was really demanding a pretty big order here. And King Solomon answered and said unto his mother, And why dost thou ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he's mine elder brother. You see, he's older than Solomon, even for him and for 
Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if Adonijah have not spoken this word against his own life. You see what he's actually doing. He's making a move toward the throne. And this is a very dangerous thing. And he's being very clever in it all. But Solomon was aware of the move. And so this causes him to now move to the execution of Adonijah. Now, therefore, as the Lord liveth, which hath established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who hath made me in house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death this day. And King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him that he died. Now, this eliminates a contender for the throne, you see. And it is something that apparently, from a governmental standpoint, was the proper thing to do. But it's a brutal thing, of course. But it was necessary to execute him to establish Solomon in the throne, because this man definitely would continue to connive and plot and attempt to remove Solomon from the throne. Now, having removed him, he's going to remove the priests that went with him, and also Joab, who also had gone with him also. Joab made, I think, a big blunder in doing what he did. And we're told here, verse 27, So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spake concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. And this ended the line of Eli, of course. Now we have here Joab. He heard what was happening, and he takes it to the tall timber, by the way. Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled under the tabernacle of the Lord and caught holt on the horns of the altar. That was always a place of safety. It was like a city of refuge. It was told King Solomon that Joab was fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold, he's by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go fall upon him. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, is the executioner for Solomon, as you can see. The thing is, Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. He came to the tabernacle and come forth and the thing was that Joab said, I'll die here if I have to die. And Benaiah didn't want to go to the altar on that kind of basis. The king said unto him, Do as he hath said, fall upon him and bury him, that thou mayst take away the innocent blood which Joab shed from me and from the house of my father. Now, he'd been a bloody man, and now Joab is slain. So Benaiah the son of Jehoiah went up, fell upon him, slew him. He was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And Joab, who'd been a bloody man, his hands were as bloody as David's were, why he is now executed because of his part in a rebellion against Solomon. Now, verse 35, And the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his room over the host, and Zadok, the priest, did the king put in the room of Abiathar. And now this man Shimei is another traitor. David would not touch him because David had given his word he wouldn't, but he'd been a traitor. 
And so Solomon now puts restrictions on him. The king sent and called for Shimei and said unto him, Build thee a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. Go not forth, then send you whither. That is, I want you here where I can keep my eye on you, because you have been out in the kingdom, and when you are, you are sowing seeds of rebellion. For it shall be that on the day thou goest out and passest over the brook Kidron, thou shalt know for certain that thou shalt surely die. Thy blood shall be upon thine head. Now, Shimei says that the thing's good. He said, the saying is good. As my Lord the king hath said, so will thy servant do. And Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. But he wants to get away, and he wants to continue to sow the rebellion in the kingdom. It came to pass at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away unto Achish, son of Maacah, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Behold, thy servants be in Gath. And Shimei arose and saddled his ass, went to Gath, brought his servants from Gath. And so he had done all of this in disobedience to Solomon. And now Shimei is executed. And I take it that he is the last of the house of Saul. And it means now that Solomon has removed most of the contenders to the throne so that he can reign actually in peace. And King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, which went out and fell upon him, that he died, and the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Now they've gone through this transition period, a bloody period. Now, in chapter 3, this is where Solomon stumped his toe at the beginning. And it was before he asked God for wisdom. Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David, until he made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Now, here is a revelation of what was happening. Now that David was gone, only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. The people began now after the reign of David. There was a period of relaxation, and they began now to offer sacrifices in high places, which actually was heathen pagan worship. It was a return to idolatry. And Solomon, though, loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. Now, Solomon did not have the love for God that David did. That's the reason, again, that I want to call it David's temple and not Solomon's temple. Solomon was perfectly willing to offer sacrifices on heathen altars. David would never have done that. My friend, you can... Blame David all you want to, but here's an unusual man. David had been a man that loved God, and he only wanted to serve him. Solomon was not that kind of a man. Although he loved the Lord, he was walking in the statue of David. But here's that little flaw that we've seen that always makes second-rate material. And you see many things today sold in a sale because of the fact just one little flaw. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place, a thousand burnt offerings 
did Solomon offer upon that altar. Quite a show that any one of those would have pointed to Christ. Now, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream by night. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Now, again, I must repeat that God today is not appearing in dreams. If you've had a dream, don't try to say the Lord appeared to you. You just find out what you had for supper, and you'll find out why you had the dream. God today is speaking in his word, but Solomon didn't have all this word in his day. And now God is appearing to Solomon, and he's telling him, Ask what you will, I'll grant it to you. Now, what is Solomon going to ask for? God gives him a choice of asking anything that he wants. Solomon, by the way, is going to make a very wise choice. He had a certain amount of wisdom before God gave him wisdom, by the way, to make such a choice as this. And I do not believe that Solomon ever had the spiritual capacity for God that David had. You do not find in him that longing for God in his life. But he recognized his shortcomings, and the first thing that he did after he married the daughter of Pharaoh, and you only wish he had done this before, he went to the Lord and asked for wisdom. And it was because the Lord had said to him, you ask what you want, and I'll give it to you. And I think the Lord recognized that Solomon had many deficiencies, he was holy and totally inadequate. But my friend, who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate today for living the Christian life? None of us are. In fact, the matter is, we'll have to come to this later, but did you know that you and I cannot live the Christian life? And furthermore, God never asked us to do it. He asked that he might live it through us. And now he is wanting to do something through Solomon here. And we find that Solomon is permitted to ask for what he wanted. He could have asked for riches. He could ask for power. There are many things he could have asked for. But you'll notice that recognizing his deficiency, this was his request. And I begin reading at verse 6. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, he recognized that he was attempting to fill not the shoes but the throne of David. And that was no easy task. And he was wholly and totally inadequate. And now, O Lord, my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant. Now, here is his request. And it is a marvelous request, by the way. 
this man recognizing his deficiency, his inadequacy. And unfortunately, there's so many folk today that are attempting to serve God that don't seem to recognize their inadequacy. None of us, friends, I do not care who you are and what your talent is, you are wholly inadequate to serve God. And that applies maybe not to you, but it applies to me today. I recognize that. I hope you do. And that puts us in a position where God can help us. Now, here is his request. It's verse 9 of First Kings 3, and I'm reading it. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who's able to judge this thy so great a people? Now he's asking for an understanding heart to judge God's people. Now I want to look at that for just a moment. He's praying, we always say, Solomon prayed for wisdom. Well, that's certainly true, but what kind of wisdom? He was praying for, shall we call it, political wisdom. That is, the ability to be a statesman, to know how to judge and rule over these people and make great national decisions. But he's not praying for spiritual discernment. I think that we need to make that very clear, and I think that you will find in the books that Solomon wrote, Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes especially, you find in both of these books wisdom that will guide you down here in this world. And that's the reason the book of Proverbs such a fine book for young men to be given the book of Proverbs. We'll see that, of course, when we come to that book. But actually, he did not pray for spiritual discernment. And yet, I think you'll find in the Song of Solomon that he reveals a real spiritual discernment. But the thing he's praying for and the thing that God gives him is this type of wisdom. Now, notice verse 10. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. You see that? That is it. To make wise decisions. Now, that is today something that, very candidly, the sickening scene that is before us today in our government is the fact that we've got a group of men clamoring for a position, want to be elected to an office, and all of them are telling us how great they are and what marvelous ability they have and that they are able to solve the problems now, friends, by now, some of us older squares, I think we've come to the conclusion that these boys are just kidding us. They don't have the solution. They don't have the wisdom. Oh, if just some of them would come on the scene and say, I don't have the wisdom. I recognize my inadequacy, 
but I'm going to depend on God to lead me and guide me. May I say to you, it would be so startling, I think, that it would probably rock the nation. But that's not what we are hearing, as you well know today. Now, Solomon asked for that, and God commends him for it. This was a great step, you see. Now, having asked for this, and God promises now to bless him, not only that, he says in verse 12, "...behold, I have done according to thy words." Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. Now, Solomon does stand out as being a wise ruler. And all you have to do is read the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Friends, you'll find there human wisdom on the highest plane. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not inspired. What I'm trying to say is God, through Solomon, is giving the highest of human wisdom. But he makes it very clear that it's wholly and totally inadequate to meet the issues of life. Now, verse 13, "...and I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor." so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I lengthen thy days. Now, the standard becomes, as we've indicated before, the standard is David. That's a human standard. It's not very high. Very frankly, very few of the kings ever came up to that. Now we're told Solomon awoke. Behold, it was a dream. He came to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings. He offered peace offerings, made a feast to all his servants. Now those burnt offerings and peace offerings, as we've said, point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The burnt offering speaks of who he is. Peace offering speaks of the fact he made peace by the blood of his cross. Because of who he is, he's able to bring us into a right relationship with God and that the guilt of our sins may be removed. Now we have a demonstration of the wisdom of Solomon that is given here. And it was a very clever solution to a problem and a real problem. Very briefly, and I'll not read this portion of it, but there were two women, and they were harlots, and they had between them one child. Whose was it? One claimed the child, and the other claimed the child. So they brought this matter to Solomon. Now, how would you solve the problem? How would you find out? Solomon said, well, I don't know who's the mother of this child. But I think that since we don't know, and both of you claim it, the thing to do would be just bring me a very sharp sword. We'll cut the baby right in half. One of you will have one half, one the other. Now, the one that was not the mother, who apparently had it in for the other woman, and she had no love, of course, for the baby, she said, sure, go ahead and do that. The real mother said, oh, no, no, don't do that, my child. And Solomon said then, this obviously, the woman that was actually willing to give the child up in order to save its life, that would be the mother of the child. 
I would say that that was a very fine way of doing it and a very excellent way. Now, this was just one of the many examples that happened during the life of this man, Solomon. Now, we continue on in chapter 4 here. And as we move into chapter 4, we see that Solomon now brings the kingdom to its zenith. The thing that marked his kingdom was peace and prosperity. And isn't that interesting? That's what we'd like to have, is it not? And Solomon, I think we could call him a prince of peace, while David was a man of war. But the peace that Solomon enjoyed and those in his kingdom was made by David, the man of war. We today like to feel that God just forgives sin because of the fact he's sentimental and that type of thing. God does not forgive sin on that low plane at all. There's a battle been fought, friends, and there's been a great sacrifice, and blood has been shed that you and I might have forgiveness of sins today. He made peace again by the blood of his cross, and it's through that that you and I today can enter into this peace. Now we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, So King Solomon was king over all Israel. And then we have a list of his princes that are mentioned here. And some of them apparently were sons of the sons of David, which would mean they'd be the nephew of Solomon. And I'll not go into that other than in verse 5, And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers, and he was the king's friend. Apparently, this was a son of David, or else a son of Nathan the prophet. We do know David had a son named after Nathan the prophet. Now, we have here also Solomon, verse 7, had twelve officers over all Israel, which provided victuals for the king and his household. Each man his month and a year made provision. Now, this was Solomon's method of taxation. And twelve of them would mean that there was one for each tribe. Now, I drop down to verse 20. Judah and Israel were many, as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. Now, this was a time of great prosperity. The wars were over. It was a time of peace. And we're told, verse 21, And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines, under the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, this was a great time, and you notice that there was plenty. It was prosperity, there was plenty, there was peace. This was a great time, and this, my friend, is just a little adumbration, a little preview of the kingdom that is coming on this earth, millennial kingdom. This is just a brief period and very brief indeed. Now, in verse 25, will you note this? And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now, there's several things here that I think are quite wonderful. 
and we need to note them. It was a time of security and safety, that which we do not have in this world today. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But peace is coming on the earth when the Prince of Peace comes. And in that day, in this day of Solomon, every man dwelt under his own vine and his fig tree. Does that tell you anything? Over against poor or labor, each man, and one's not living in a castle and the other in a hovel, each man has his vine and his fig tree. He has his own possession. And it was from Dan to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Now, we come to one little spot here, and I must call attention to it. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, the horse was the animal of war. And God had forbidden, if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, 16, You'll find out God gave a specific law that a king was not to multiply horses and he was not to multiply wives. Solomon did both. When I was at Megiddo, that is, the little mound that overlooks the valley there where we believe that the great issue will be finally settled in the last days. We call it the battle, but it's actually the war of Armageddon in that great valley of Esdraelon. And this place of Megiddo overlooks it. Tremendous view, by the way. But the thing that impressed me were the ruins there of the stalls of Solomon. There are the troughs where the horses ate. All of that is there. Those ruins are all up and down that land. Solomon certainly multiplied horses, contrary to the wisdom of God. Now we're told here something of the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much, largeness of heart, even as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country. By the way, that's where the wise men came from, from the east, and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than certain wise men are mentioned. And here. Four wise men are mentioned that were outstanding. Now we're told he spoke 3,000 proverbs. We only have just a few hundred. And his songs were 1,005. Believe me, he was a songwriter. And we have only one song that is mentioned. And he spoke of trees. He was a dendrologist. From the cedar tree that's in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. That's a little humble thing that grows on rocks. He spake also of beasts. He was zoologist, and of fowls, and of creeping things. Well, he was a bugologist, and of fishes. He was an authority in these particular realms. This apparently the beginning of the sciences. This man Solomon was interested in those things. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. Now, he gained a worldwide reputation for his wisdom, and they came to hear it. Now, we have very few of the Proverbs that he wrote, but it's in the book of Proverbs. And as we've said before, these are extremely helpful to any young man entering life. Certain great principles are put down there that should guide a man in life, guide him in his business. 
You see, God is very practical with us, and this gets right down to the nitty-gritty where you and I walk in and out of the marts of trade, where you and I go into the bazaars of today, where you and I enter into the courts of the land and into social gatherings. There are certain great principles that are put down there that would guide the young man today. I'm not trying to say he'd be living the Christian life, but he sure would have marvelous guidelines given to him there. We'll have an occasion, of course, to see that later. 